0: It's been a big week for sports fans. The Masters, College Basketball National Championships, opening day, 19 years ago this week, the greatest basketball player, at least up until that point, played his last game. Michael Jordan's greatness caused many kids of the 80s and 90s like me to spend hours in the driveway shooting hoops with big dreams and a single question burning in our minds. How do you be like Mike? Many of you remember the famous ad campaign, I Want to Be Like Mike, I Won't Sing It For You, but it had clips of Jordan beating the Lakers in the finals, interspersed in this beautiful montage of him playing basketball on the court in the playground with kids like me. And it answered the question, how do you be like Mike? Well, you've gotta drink like Mike, you've gotta drink Gatorade. This isn't just a big week in sports, This is the most important week in human history, and there's a greater question that burns, hopefully, in our minds. How do we be like Jesus? I think whether you are coming this morning as a person of faith or perhaps questioning that yourself, you might wish or pray that you could be more like Jesus in your interactions, in the way that you are in your relationships with others. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. In a letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Even the best and brightest that we see in the pages of scripture recognize that we should want to be more like Jesus. And he tells the Philippians in the letter that we just heard read how to do it. To be like Jesus, we should think like Jesus. You can see verse five, page four of your service leaflet. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The verb used there means to think, to be like-minded, to have the mind of Christ. But what is the mind of Christ? Our passage shows us that there are two things which mark the mind of Christ. First, humility that we see in much of the passage up through verse eight. And the second, glory, which we see in verses nine through 11. You can find some notes in the back of your service leaflet if you'd like to follow along. As we enter into Holy Week, we follow the way that Jesus walked, beginning with palms, beginning with humility, before we get to glory. It can be easy to breeze through this week, bypassing the events that come before Easter morning. I was reminded this morning with a slight breeze outside and a red stole that marks today, that a little bit of a breeze can turn us to Easter. Yes, that's right, this new priest still has his starter stoles that are reversible. But instead, I want us to enter into this week at the pace that our worship services follow, entering into Jerusalem with the crowds, to the upper room with the disciples, on the way to the cross, before we encounter the glory of Easter morning, we encounter the humility that comes first. Our passage gives us a simple command in verse five, or or building up to verse five, be humble like Jesus. And as Shakespeare would say, therein lies the rub, Here's the problem, that's hard and we're bad at it. Paul writes in verses three and four of some of the challenges that we experience when it comes to humility. We're prone to act out of selfishness, out of ambition, conceit, vanity. We don't value others' dignity as much as we value our own. We focus on others, or on our own interests instead of those of others. If we think about our lives, we know that this is true, and the Philippians' lives were no different. Later in this letter, Paul writes uh, some very personal, specific notes to a couple of people in the Philippian church. He writes the following, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, stop your bickering. Put others' interests ahead of your own and you won't be so argumentative. If you find yourself and your life marked by disagreement and division, Arguing over small things, hard to give your time and energy to others, you're in good company with the Philippians because you're in good company with the sinners that make up Christ's church. Paul uses a word in verse 3, translated in English as vain conceit. The Greek is kinodoxia, kino meaning empty, doxia meaning glory, empty glory. And one commentator writes this. The Philippians were told not to puff themselves up with empty glory because Christ was an example of one who emptied his glory. Christ empties himself of his glory, not seeking short term praise. As he enters into Jerusalem, it says that if the people didn't stay quiet, then, or if, rather, if the people stayed quiet, the stones would have cried out in praise. The crowd wanted to participate and proclaim Christ's glory now. They didn't want to enter into the hard events that would follow. They didn't want to participate in his humility. I think we're the same. It's hard to be humble when we want the glory now. So let's consider Jesus's example of humility from our passage. Tim Keller writes that Jesus came as a poor man to a family at the bottom of the social order. He experienced death at the hands of those using their power to unjustly oppress. In Jesus, we see God laying aside his privilege and his power and his glory in order to identify with the weak and the helpless. And when he saves us through the use of his power only for service, he changes our attitude to and our use of power. As we consider the events of this week, We see that humility for Christ is evident in huge ways, ways that seem otherworldly to us because they are. And for us, humility instead should be evident in smaller ways, in smaller acts of service. So as it says in verse three and four, how do we look to others' interests and stop focusing just on ourselves? I wanna talk practically about four things, praise, comparison, listening, and power. First, praise. Take a look at your reading in your leaflet, page four. You'll notice that if you look at verses six through, seven, six through 11, that they are offset. The text is displayed differently. It's displayed like poetry. Scholars actually believe that these verses were just that. They were verses of one of the first Christian hymns that the early church sung to praise Jesus. The thing about praise is praise takes the focus off of us and puts it on someone else. Especially if your voice is not very good like mine, it definitely takes the focus off yourself because all you do is you sing like this. I know there are some of you out there just like me. See, praise reminds us that we aren't God. It helps us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought as we contemplate the mighty act, as we sing all glory, laud, and honor, as we put an ashen cross on our forehead, we're reminded of our mortality and God's eternal goodness. We're reminded of our sin in light of God's grace. So the first thing to help us as we follow the way of Jesus' humility is praise. The second. I want us to consider comparison. C.S. Lewis writes this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. You might be proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. I might add to that list, you might think of yourselves as being a better student, a better parent, the most generous grandparent in the bunch. We like to use superlatives, don't we? We like to tell our stories to one-up. We want to be not just the best, but the bestest. Raise your hands if you've heard of Jackie Robinson. Keep your hands up if you've heard of Earl Lloyd. A lot of you just dropped your hands. Earl Lloyd was born 94 years ago this week in Alexandria, Virginia. There is a marker put up at his childhood home this week. Earl Lloyd, was an excellent basketball player and a trailblazer, the first African-American to play in the National Basketball Association. I didn't know his name until this week. But Earl was not known best for his greatness, for his trailblazing, for his accomplishments, but for his character. Asked about how he made such an impact in a trailblazing way at the time that he did, he just said, I was in the right place at the right time. Could have sung his own praises pretty easily. When asked about his legacy, he simply said, I just hope I conducted myself where I made it easier for others. And I think I did. If you take a look at any basketball game on TV today, I think you will agree that he did. Simply put, he was eulogized. I read this in our local paper this week in this way. He was the humblest human being I've ever met. He was more than a great athlete. He was a great man. So when we think about the ways that we compare ourselves to others, the way that we aspire to be better than others, what models of greatness are we aspiring to? Is it to be remembered for our accolades or perhaps to be remembered for Our character. Third, listening. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble, C.S. Lewis writes in the same book I just read from, Mere Christianity. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all you ever come across people who just seem like good listeners? They're not interrupting, waiting to tell their story the moment you stop talking? Professor and Christian writer Dallas Willard, who's a philosophy professor, and he would often have students, as you might imagine, on college campus. He was at USC for nearly 50 years. You would imagine that, and some of you can attest to this personally, that philosophy students probably love to argue argue, and make audacious claims to their professors. Some of those are incorrect, and some of those might be offensive. Dallas Willard, often when a comment like that would come near the end of class, would simply say, well class, I think that's a good place for us to end today. He didn't publicly admonish or correct, He didn't have to have the final say. Someone asked him about why he did this afterwards, and he said, I am practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word, even in the face of statements which might be untrue. A simple discipline of listening, of not having to have our voice always heard the loudest. Might simply be that you ask questions of other people. Questions to show that you are that person that Lewis describes, that you are genuinely interested in what they have to say. Questions because you know that they have something valuable to say. Questions because you know that they might be more of an expert than you in some area. I was telling somebody as they came in that uh, our family went to Huntley Meadows yesterday, a favorite place, not just for us on a Saturday morning, but many professional ornithologists and bird watchers with their cameras that are about this long. And my daughter, who is not yet four, was keeping a very official list of the things that she saw. There are many birds which were identified as a goose. (laughs) There is an especially beautiful bird at a distance, which my poor eyes could not see, but of course the extended lenses could, which I incorrectly identified and told my daughter was a duck. I don't know if she knew that it wasn't a duck, but she asked me if I would ask a stranger what the bird's name was. It turns out it is not a goose. It is not just a duck. It is a hooded merganser, apparently a treasure for the ornithology community to see a hooded merganser with its chicks in tow in the springtime. I'm not a bird expert, so why should I pretend? Might we have that humility to listen to those who know more than we do, or even if we don't think they do, to listen to what others have to say? Praise, comparison, listening, finally power. Verse six in our passage says that Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider Equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Another translation did not says did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. How often do we find ourselves grasping for power, grasping to have the upper hand, to have an advantage, grasping for control? I was talking with a friend this week who was, uh, as per usual, making a a critique of uh, a political. Leader and another friend said, But well, wouldn't you want to be in that spot? You do a pretty good job. And she said, Honestly, she said, I wouldn't make a good leader because I want all of the power and none of the responsibility. She didn't want to risk, she didn't want the vulnerability that comes with responsibility. But the problem is when we separate authority from vulnerability, very quickly, It leads to exploitation. Authority and vulnerability are meant to go together. In fact, that is the model of Jesus that we see on display during Holy Week. The model of Jesus who ties a towel around his waist and washes his disciples' dirty feet. The model of Jesus as he heads to the cross. It continues in our passage, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He laid down his power in obedience. Consider how we may do the same, laying aside our privilege, our power, even on our authority. We too can be motivated by obedience, but I think there's a greater motivator. If you were here with us, Last week, you heard David preach that rules are seldom as good a motivator as love. And Paul hints at this in the very beginning of our passage. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. He gives us a clue to the motivations for humility. He speaks of encouragement, of comfort, tenderness, compassion, joy. Nineteenth century South African Preacher and pastor Andrew Murray wrote a very skinny little book called Humility. And in it he writes, it is necessary to understand that it is not sin that humbles us the most, but grace. It is not sin that humbles us the most, but grace. We are not meant to wallow in guilt, but we are meant to delight in God's gracious love to us. His gracious love, so we consider His encouragement, His tenderness, His compassion, the joy set before Him as He endures the cross. The most widely read Christian book of all time, second to the Bible, it is thought, is a book by Thomas Akempis called The Imitation of Christ. It's probably not surprising because for us Jesus is our example and scripture is filled with the urging that we follow the way of Jesus, that Jesus would be our example. But here's the thing, we need much more than an example to follow. We don't need just a pillar of moral goodness to aspire to. We need someone who defeated death. We need someone who identifies with us in our sinful humanity. We need someone who, in spite of our failure, is our Savior, a Savior whose love is the best motivator, a Savior whose love can actually work in us and change us, a Savior whose love helps us as we follow him on his way. Let us pray. Lord God, if we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if we have any comfort from his love, if we have any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then help us to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, that we may be like Jesus in humility and in glory. Amen.